0: N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash W-T-F. <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckaholics? What the fuck is happening? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for joining me. It's a very exciting show today. It was a very exciting show for me to do. Uh, I interviewed David Byrne, uh, known from uh, being himself, David Byrne, and also from the Talking Heads, one of the greatest bands of the 20th century. So I was very excited to sit down with David at his office and have a conversation. Did not know how it would go. I think it went pretty well. I'll give you a little background on that in just a second. But this week... It's a pretty special week because you'll be able to hear the talk that I had with Terry Gross. Uh, you'll be able to hear it in two different places, friends. On Wednesday, Fresh Air on NPR will present a good chunk of the interview. Then on Thursday, the full interview will be that day's WTF episode. This was a big deal, people. This is a big deal for me. I'm sure I'll talk to you more about it before the show on Thursday, but Terry Gross is the, the standard she is the, the industry standard, the best, the best of the best interviewers, and I was nervous to interview her, especially in front of people, but it went great. It was an amazing experience, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, on the day, that being Thursday. Anyways, let's talk about David Byrne. Let's talk about a genius. You know, I, I love interviewing people, and, and God knows I've interviewed a lot of people, but some people I get kind of nervous about. About interviewing because I, I have this respect for their output, this respect for their creativity, for their for their um, the amazing things that they've done. And David Byrne is one of those people. And I had no idea what he would be like. I didn't know if he'd be sociable. I didn't know you know what what it would be like because my experience of David Byrne is almost exclusively through uh, through the Talking Heads music and some of his solo stuff. I was introduced by David Byrne by my first girlfriend in college, Sarah. Who uh, who had half of her head shaved in a little patch, uh, you know wore uh, you know Doc Martens and uh, was basically a pretty punk, pretty uh, yeah more than me, and I remember that she had I think she had Remain in Light if that's possible, is that when that came out and she would play that and I'd be like yeah I don't know if I get it and then she turned me on to you know the other stuff I believe Fear of Music. And the first record, which I had when I was a kid, because I got it from the record store that gave it to me, they gave me a box of records because they only played R and B, gave me all these rock records. But I think the only one, the only song I listened to when I was in high school of the Talking Heads was "Take Me to the River," the the, the cover, and maybe uh, maybe Big Country. I always liked Big Country, but I don't think I really wrapped my head around the Talking Heads till later in college when I went to see "Stop Making Sense." Wow! Oh, "Stop Making Sense." Oh yeah, man. Do you remember that when that came out? I don't know if you're old enough. I don't know if you are, but I had an experience there that because I was dating Sarah, I, it couldn't have been for that long. It must have been one of our first few dates because it was at the Coolidge Corner movie house, and I believe she was working at an, another movie theater that was also like owned by the same people or they had an understanding. I don't know, but it was a date. Now I had spent that day tripping on mushrooms with my friends. I remember that we spent the day tripping on mushrooms, but I had to meet her at the movie place at the theater to see the premiere of stop making sense. And I know she really loved the talking Heads. I didn't know what to expect. I was a little trippy still, but the one thing that I remember outside of the movie blowing my mind, we got there, we got to the show. I was sitting with her and this is early in the relationship. Maybe one of the first few dates. I don't even know if we had had sex yet or what. I'm not sure what had happened at that point, but we were towards the back of the theater and I was sitting next to her and uh, the movie had started and, it, and I was into it, but like, you know, I, I was coming down, you know, and things were tweaky around the edges and I dozed off and I, in the movie, I dozed off and I woke myself up with the sound of my own fart sitting beside a woman Who I had been on maybe three dates with. This was not a good situation. You don't know what to do in that situation. It's unclear. Do you bring it up? Do you? I mean, I don't remember the depth of the experience. You know, I'm trying not to be too crass. I don't remember if it was smelly or whether it was a big problem for everybody, but I do remember the intense embarrassment. Uh, of that moment and just kind of looking over at her and wondering if she heard it. I don't know how she could not have heard it. And 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 all this is going on as David Byrne is jumping around in a giant suit on screen. I can only say that he must have buffered that situation because we did end up staying together after that. We made it through that horrendous experience so early in a relationship where that's really unacceptable. It shouldn't be. I mean, you should be able to do that, but it's, not, it's just not the way life works. It just isn't. You shouldn't have. There shouldn't be that much shame carried uh, around something that you know has to happen. It's got to happen somewhere, not in your sleep at a movie theater, crowded movie theater next to a girl you just started dating. That's not where it has to happen. I should have controlled that, but I was sleeping and I was coming down from mushrooms, so it was probably amplified the experience for me. But as I said, we made it through, and that's uh, that's my that's my memory of uh, the Stop Making Sense movie. Aren't you happy I shared that? Folks, my experience uh, leading up to the David Byrne interview, I was in New York. It was set up. You know, I went back and I listened. I, I still listen to Fear of Music a great deal like pretty compulsively. But I went and listened to uh, more songs about buildings and food. I, I listened to Talking Hand 7 to 7. I listened to Remain in Light. Then I listened to the Knee Plays and I listened to uh, uh, David Byrne, the Catherine Wheel, the music for uh, the Twyla Tharp dance production. The knee Plays was for the, what's his name, Robert Wilson. But I used to like that stuff and the stuff he did, uh, oh, uh, what is it, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts with Brian Eno? I mean, he did some great shit. The later Talking Head stuff the, the uh, and then the salsa music. Anyways, David Byrne. I dumped my head full of David Byrne, and then I was waiting to go to his office, and I was walking around New York City, and I went and got a coffee down the corner, down on Canal Street somewhere, and the, uh, the Bee Gees were playing. It was a soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever, and then I thought that, like, wow, this was, this was coinciding with the beginning of the, of, the, uh, of the Talking Heads. I mean, the Talking Heads helped destroy disco. It was part of the movement against that. But then evolved into sort of this its own sort of dance music. And all this was going through my head. Like and I thought the experience of listening to, to that music as I was waiting to go talk to David Byrne would he would somehow appreciate that, that there was connections being made and that I'd opened my mind up to musical textures and what that was um provoking in my mind. And maybe I just opened my conversation talking about the bee gees. But uh I did not do that. I did not do that. What I did was I took the elevator up and uh, I met David Byrne and I tried to, you know, I, he was just a guy and I know he's just a guy, but David Byrne has his own groove in life. You know, he has, there, there's something so familiar about the way he moves and the way he talks and the way he looks. If you're a fan of the Talking Heads or if you're a fan of anybody, you kind of lock in. This guy was an important part of my life for many years and I still play his music. So uh, I didn't talk about the Bee Gees. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. I'll tell you what I talked about. At the beginning, we start talking about his new project, Contemporary Color. These are color guard competitions that David Byrne conceived where the color guard teams perform with live music from St. Vincent, Ad Rock, from the Beastie Boys, Toon Yards, Nelly Furtado, and a few other people. Uh, This is going to be a live performance. Leave it up to David Byrne to bring certain things together that you would never assume would work together, and I know very little about color guard, so I was happy to talk to him about it. It will be uh, it will be at Toronto's Air Canada Centre on June twenty second and twenty third, and the Barclays Center in Brooklyn on June twenty seventh and twenty eighth. So, with no further ado, let's enter the offices of David Byrne, which are filled with books and music and and people working on things. I think it's the Todo Mundo uh, is the name of his uh, his company. Nice people at his office, and very very inviting, warm the kind of people you'd think would be working for David Byrne, but it was it was very warm and it was a, a lovely conversation and I really didn 't know what to expect i didn 't know how forthcoming it would be or, or how it would go, but I never do, so enjoy my conversation Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Jeez, it's a, a privilege and an honor to meet you, David Byrne.
1: You too. <laughs> you too. It's.
0: Do you hear that a lot? An honor.
1: Once in a while, and it's always yeah. very, very flattering. <laughs> it never wears thin. <laughs> Um, I
0: I have like uh, strange memories of uh, uh, like you uh, on record and in screen, on screen. But there's two very specific memories I have of you in in person that you would not share with me. You would not know that they (laughs) happened. Uh I was on an airplane with you once. Uh, I was not, I was, it was much younger. I don't remember. It must be like 25, 30 years ago. Big fan. And I saw you sitting there. And then after everyone got off the plane, we were all standing around. baggage claim that was there was nothing coming out and it was going on a long time and then you had somehow gone to another baggage claim and this is just very specific to what I know of you and you just went over here with a very (laughs) unique David Byrne movement
1: (laughs) (laughs) to tell everybody right but the movement our bags are over here now but
0: it was so specifically you that, like, you know, there was just a way that, you know, you move through the world. I'm like, that was so David Byrne, that movement. Oh, it was very, a very choreographed kind of movement. <laughs> exactly. Oh, geez. Okay. And then there was another time I saw you drive by in a bicycle in Chelsea and you had lights on your, maybe on your ankle.
1: Is that possible? Yes. That is possible. That's possible. And yes, I tried that for a while. You did? Yeah, like a little uh, trouser clip yeah. that actually had flashing lights on it. Exactly. So. Uh, very geek- geek- geeky, but... Uh, but
0: Right, but there was something to, to me like, I saw you drive by and I didn't say anything. I'm like, oh, that's David Byrne. But then it became more significant to me that it was David Byrne when all I saw was a bouncing light. I was like, that's very creative. <laughs>
1: He's effortlessly uh, artistic. He's just a fading light. <laughs> just a fading light on a leg going exactly, up and down. Exactly. It's like, so minimal. This is perfect.
0: The guy's amazing. So I we should start talking, I guess, about what's going on now, what I just watched, and then okay. move backward. Now, I don't know anything about Color Guard. It, it, it seemed to, at one time, be a military thing. Is that... Probably
1: way, way back, way back. Yeah. Um, okay. Our, really, uh, long story short, in, a, in mid-June, we're doing these events, these spectacles, at Barclay Center Arena in Brooklyn and uh, the Air Canada Arena in Toronto. And they bring together 10 Color Guard teams and 10 musical acts. So it's Color Guard doing their thing, like 10 six-minute programs with live music Mm that's been written specially for them. Okay, now, but then you go, well, yeah, but what is that? Right. (laughs) And I didn't know until recently.
0: It's obviously a culture, like many things have this culture that we don't know about until someone goes, have you seen this? And you're like, oh, my
1: God. That's been around all the time? (laughs) Yes, it's one of those kind of things where it's like, that's been going on all... Yeah. Uh, people do that? Yeah. Yeah. So this one, uh, I know that it, it's during the fall season, it's associated with football, marching bands, right. drum lines, all that kind of stuff. And they're they, they outside and they kind of get in formation and toss their flags up and toss their rifles up in the air and all that kind of stuff. Off season is when they get more creative. And that's kind of what I saw 1st Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a DVD of their championship because they licensed some music, and it. Uh, so they move into gymnasiums and they get very creative, where it's kind of thematic aspects of dance and tossing the flag, still tossing the flags and rifles, and they sometimes have a, a message or a story or s- some subject that yeah. they're they're dealing with. So it's, it's no longer connected with football or marching band or any of that kind of stuff and they usually use pre-recorded music, a mm-hmm. uh, song or instrumental or whatever like that. And that's what I saw and I thought this is kind of an incredible art form out there in in America, kind of vernacular art form nobody where I live knows about it. Sure. And I thought but what yeah, what if it had live music instead of the pre-recorded stuff uh-huh. that they use? Wouldn't that kind of kick it all up a notch and make it more exciting? So that's that's what this thing is and it's yeah, so when I and you know our little office here started approaching them I was like what what who who are you what what is this what could this <laughs> yeah. be about this is not our world right yeah, to them this was like a you know a foreign world intruding into their no no world. these
0: worlds you're talking about you're talking about basically the 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 art and music world of, of New York uh-huh and and the the greater America
1: to some extent yeah 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 there's no color guard teams in. New York City. As Soho. Far as I know. No, there's no so- Soho color guard representing. No, no. Although that could be coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's an interesting sort of uh, uh,
0: straddling of, of worlds that I think you've done a lot. You know, throughout your career, you're trying, you're, you're, your understanding of what America is has, has sort of shifted and mm-hmm. something you've engaged in. I mean, even like, even a song like, like Let's Go Back Now. So even a song like, uh, like Big Country, where there, no. there's this idea of, uh, of flying over America, what, is your, what do you think your evolving relationship with the, the difference between New York and America is
1: at this point? Um, is that too broad? No, no, no. At that time, I intentionally wrote that, that song, Big Country, that Talking Hits song. I wrote that um, in a way to kind of have this kind of cliched idea of the New Yorker, you know, Bohemian right. New Yorker, kind of looking down their nose right. at the rest of right. the country. yeah. And yet... Um, so there's yet, a satire. It's a bit of a satire, but it's also a satire of kind of the image of what I'm supposed to be. Right. Oh, I'm supposed to be that kind of jaded New Yorker <laughs> who looks down on the countryside. But you're not. But I'm not. Right. Um, I'm not. Or at least I try not to be. Right. Um, and over years, I've kind of chipped away at that. I find things going on out in the country that uh, and I go that's incredible and it's kind of completely under the radar somewhere mm-hmm. else and look what they're doing out there. We should learn from that uh, in some cases, or we should appreciate that. Elevate it. We should elevate it. It's just as good as any of the kind of fancy schmancy stuff that's sure. going on here and uh, they're doing it by themselves and nobody, no, nobody in the kind of one of the worlds of New York times or whatever else knows about this stuff. Right. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to, Give it some support, or or put it in a new context, where people kind of look at it in a different way, and yeah. they don't just they don't just see it as oh yeah that's that's crazy stuff that high school kids do. Right.
0: Well, it's interesting that dialogue though is, is that because like even through like you know true stories and all like because I to me in my mind when I was younger that that what what you were doing with the Talking Heads and then even after the Talking Heads it was so specific and so uniquely yours, but also very specific. It was an integration of, of, of popular culture, popular music, and, and, and the art world. You, yeah,
1: to some extent, yeah, yeah.
0: You seem to be the guy that it ran through, somehow or another.
1: Okay. And I never felt that any of it needed to be um, distant or hard to understand. Right. Or I felt like there's, there's always got to be a way to make it accessible. Right. No matter how arty it is, you can make it accessible. If it's a, if it's a cool idea or makes you feel good or whatever, there's a way to do that without it being like, oh, that's... that's yeah, that's,
0: we, that's not for us. Yeah, that's Who not for us. Who do they think they no,
1: are? No, you can make it so it's kind of accessible to everybody. <laughs> well, when did
0: you start thinking that way, though? I mean, was it before the music? I mean, was it something that you, you, you entered your creativity knowing that you're like, I can make this understandable or I can make you know what I do uh, mainstream yeah. in a way?
1: Yes, yeah. I think I heard that in the music growing up, when mm-hmm. I was growing up. Oh, stuff in the late 60s when I was in high school, uh-huh. early 70s, and all the and whether it was R&B or rock or whatever it was called at that point. What were you listening to,
0: do you think? It like, was what was just
1: really, really normal stuff, you know, like rock stuff, like whether it would be the Beatles or Jimi Hendrix or the... Or whatever. Right. Any, any when any was, was your of first stuff?
0: memories of, of music? Like how young were you when you started playing things?
1: I must have been about 13 or something like that. When you started playing instruments? Trying. Yeah. Not very well. What was trying. the first one? Oh, I remember trying to play guitar, but I, and I had violin lessons as a child. It didn't take very well. No. But <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you wouldn't be
0: doing this uh, but, color guard thing if you were a violinist.
1: But those, some of those, you know, some of the rock groups, some of the R&B groups, whether it was... Curtis Mayfield, Temptations, Uh whatever it all, they all started getting a little more experimental and adventurous in kind of late 60s, early 70s, and people doing all kinds of different things, Isaac Hayes, whatever. Sure. Uh, Not to kind of make any kind of uh, nostalgia, I I don't have a nostalgic bone in my body, but that's that's when I grew up. Uh That's when I heard that stuff, and I thought, this is possible. It's possible to do really kind of, not difficult but sophisticated stuff that's experimental that pushes the edge and it's still popular. It's still in the top forty, sure. and it still appeals to ordinary people right. like me. And I listen to it and I go, "Wow, that's really innovative," and yet it's still in the top forty. And that still happens. That still happens. But that's that was really formative. Well, it's different then because I mean, you
0: you were you, you know you're at least old enough to remember that you know a pop song was a pop song. There was no experimenting. It's, I mean, when you were a young child, yes, that yes. you know you had your the first verse, the second verse, refrain, then maybe a little instrument, and then the closing exactly. verse. And you were you out. had to
1: do that, yeah, and that was it. And yeah. then you hear, hear people kind of breaking the mold and changing the way the music sounds and the kind of words that they use and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it. the '60s broke it all open. Yeah, and so I thought, okay, that's a, that is a possibility. When you say you don't have a nostalgic bone in your body, what does that mean, really? I don't look back as like, oh, that was a golden age, or things were better when New York was was right. shittier, or um, <laughs> not at all. You don't do that. <laughs> no, I don't do that. Um, I mean, there were certain. You can look at certain things and go, there was that was a good aspect uh, at a certain time, but I don't look at it, like, oh, things were better then, or I do don't you, think like that. Well,
0: because I was thinking about this coming over and because like I know, like it's it's interesting because. You know, I looked at your book. I was at McSweeney's, I think, in San Francisco when I first saw the hardback cover of the of the new book. What's the new? How, How music, music works. works. And I looked through that. and I'm like, oh my god, he's he's he keeps working. He keeps doing things. He's <laughs> <laughs> and and like there's things I've missed. But it, but what's interesting to me is I go back and I you know there's you know I listen to to Fear of Music fairly regularly. Wow! When you hear someone say that, do you think like, but I've got this other stuff that I do, or do you do you? Are you able to say like, I that, that's great that you listen to that?
1: Yes, I'm able to say it's great that you. I'm totally flattered. Who was it was it Jonathan Lath- Latham? Yeah, Jonathan. Who wrote, Latham. He, wrote, he wrote, wrote a book basically. Oh, on, on, that, the, oh, on the that the, record
0: on the thirty three and the third series, the little. I
1: think he did based on that record. Oh
0: really? Did you read it?
1: No. I, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's well-written and it's good and it's interesting and, and it's more, I think, about he, how his it experience. Affected, his experience, how it affected him, what he was going through at that moment. It's not a song-by-song song analysis of the right, record right.
0: in that way. When you, when you think of the Talking Heads, because do you, does it just feel far away?
1: Uh, no, no, hmm. it feels, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it feels like, oh, that was something I did at that po- point in my life, um, I'm aware that Certainly a certain generation Knows more of that stuff Than they know What I've done In the last 10 years But it depends There's other people Who know what I did Recently More than they know The old stuff It was kind of like Oh you did You were in a band Before this And um, Oh really There's a little bit Not that much But there's a little bit (laughs) And what do you say to that? You're like, yeah, I, that thing. It's not yeah, a- yeah, it was a thing, and uh, it, it was, and I go, it was, yeah, it was pretty popular for a while. <laughs> and, uh, but,
0: but to talk about, if we frame it in a non-nostalgic way, and, and just talk about it as a, as a creative evolution for you,
1: I mean, where did where did you grow up? Where were you born? I grew up in here comes Baltimore, uh-huh. and well, my 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 family came from Scotland. Uh, before that, with me when I was really little. So you were
0: born in Scotland.
1: Born in Scotland, they came to first to Canada, and then I don't know, five or six years later to Baltimore.
0: Do you remember Canada? I remember just a little bit. Right. So Baltimore cold, was most cold. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your dad? What was he do? do he did worked he worked at
1: Westinghouse as a as an engineer, electronics engineer, designing things or? Yeah, designing things, uh, not stoves and uh, right. microwaves, but like probably missile guidance systems. Oh, he was uh, stuff oh, like in Baltimore, st- right. St- so. They had like something like that in yeah. Canada, but the main one that was doing that kind of stuff was in Baltimore.
0: So your dad would go away to a non-disclosed location <laughs>
1: <laughs> and come back and, yeah. no questions, kid. Yeah, it wasn't quite like that, but yes, yes, there was <laughs> kind of that, and I would go, so what yeah, so what are you working on? Uh, and it was just kind of, it's not interesting. Uh-huh. It's not interesting. I, I don't think he, he wasn't... You know, they, my parents were kind of peaceniks, and uh-huh. they weren't. He wasn't particularly proud of the that he was maybe designing missile guidance systems or something but, like that. But he must be one of the guys that could. He was one of the guys that could. He loved the problem solving uh-huh. uh, aspect of it. Uh-huh. I remember there was one time they sent him somewhere because they were having a problem with a, a submarine, right. oh, like really? in uh, Newport News or yeah. wherever that that port is. He came back, and it was one of the—I think one of the first times I saw him really proud of his abilities in that way. He, he, he said, <laughs> "I fixed it with a coat hanger. <laughs> fixed the submarine with a coat hanger." I thought, "Oh, geez, okay, that's uh, that's." You know, I felt proud for him too that yeah, he had right. the ingenuity. <laughs> yeah. it, it sounds very Russian or whatever <laughs> right. to to do that. And but I'm also kind of looking around the house and going. That's the way he fixes stuff around the house, oh, right. <laughs> and that doesn't always stick, right? Yes, and it holds for a while, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to be in that submarine six months from now, right? So, <laughs> how uh, so you, they weren't musical necessarily,
0: no, no. And what was it that like locked you into the music thing?
1: Oh, like any kid, I think in my teens, yeah, you start to hear some stuff on in those cases transistor radio but it's right. the same of hearing something sure. on your phone or whatever and uh it's you realize it's coming from another world different than the little suburban right place you're at and that it's a world that sounds really exciting that's kind of directed towards where you're going to be in a few years right where you're yeah. going to be where yeah. your head's going to be at in a few years and go that's it it's like they're sending a signal and it's coming it's directed to me and everybody like me yeah. around the yeah. country this right. is a direct thing of course it's coming through like am radio or something, right. something like sure. that but we think it's being right we think they they found us right. and we we've, and we found it and yeah. we've got a common link so then you just go here here it is i i need to be part of this this whatever is, it is this weird grown-up world that yes, yes. elsewhere yes i'm going to learn how to play a guitar or i'm going to buy some records, and figure out what this is. So guitar was the first love, the first instrument.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So now, when you decide to get out, what you do in high school, you did all right?
1: Okay. It did okay. And yeah. then
0: you went, to, you went to where to go to college? I
1: went to an art school, uh, Rhode Island School of Design.
0: Oh, that's right. That's a fancy,
1: that's like RISD. It's yes, got its, it's own RISD. mythos. Yes, it does. <laughs> um, and I have to say that although I enjoyed the arts, the art stuff, it was more of a social, I think, revelation to me than an artistic one.
0: What, what was the art, the medium that you were there for, ostensibly?
1: Well, what would it have been? Did it had? Did you have to have one? Is that how it you worked? had to have one? But I realized that uh, that a degree in fine arts or whatever it was right. going to be was basically useless for getting a job. <laughs> so you well, realized that? Yes, I and did you wanted realize, to get a job. Well, I did. I thought. I'll get you know at that time you thought I'll get a day job and right. you, but this is you're playing guitar pretty, already yeah and the creative stuff is what I really wanted to do I didn't have a career plan but right. I thought that's what I really want to do uh, and the, a degree is going to be useless um, so I'll just get as much out of the school as I possibly can so I kind of switched my major all the time yeah from like photography to right. painting to uh, Whatever, whatever else it might be, graphics design, sure. whatever. I just kept switching, and uh, that way I got to use uh, all. I got to learn as many different techniques, right, as I possibly could. I got to work in a dark room or use the printmaking stuff or whatever,
0: and also be exposed to I, what I imagine would be very contemporary artists at the time. That most of the. The, the 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 things that were happening at that time, RISD
1: was on top of. It wasn't some
0: dry kind of historical were, school. But
1: RISD was very, Is I, it might still be. Um, I don't know. At that time, it was. Uh, there was a lot of cool stuff happening, but on another level, it was very traditional. Mm-hmm. From the kind of first couple of years or whatever, you had to learn how to draw. You had to learn. You had to sit and draw. Right. Still lifes and naked people and all that kind of stuff. And other kind of schools, they didn't, they threw that out the window. Right. Really kind of, they, they kind of felt like, no, you have to learn. Get these, a craft in place. Yeah, you have to get a craft in place. Um, so, yeah, I, I went, but the thing that hit me the most was not the artistic stuff, yeah. what, which was great and everything, and was the whole social thing that I met people. You know, I grew up in a little suburb of Baltimore. And uh, so all of a sudden, I was meeting. More black people, Jewish people, rich people, fancy people, Uh people from California. (laughs) From California. From California, yeah. yeah. (laughs) No, all of that. And people like that, that sounds kind of... No, no, I get it. It sounds really dumb.
0: It's mind-blowing.
1: Yeah, and it was mind-blowing. Yeah. I I might have had heard or read or something that these people existed. (laughs) Right. That their lives were completely different than mine. Their upbringings were completely different. But you... You might have heard about it or read about it but you can't really imagine it until you you're talking with some having a beer with somebody sure. and you're just talking about how things were when they grew up and you realize that is not my world at all. Yeah. That person is from another world. Yeah. Their references are completely different than mine.
0: I still feel that. And but that's fascinating to you all the way through the life, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, but that was when it was really
0: hit me like, and it was simple that, uh, that
1: we're all not we're uh, we're all the same in some ways but sure. we're all not the same in so many other ways but but that
0: that that you remember that having that much impact and these are just people maybe in california or from an inner city Yeah, these or are all a- people
1: in art school right I yeah, mean, exactly this, it, it's, yeah it's, this is hardly yeah. a wide range right of, right of society yeah these are not people that escaped russia necessarily yes, no
0: but that's funny because that weird kind of like you're almost like shocked into this compulsive empathy about you know somebody else's life and world mm-hmm. that curiosity has driven the music all the way through Your i music. guess so yeah yeah mm. hey, you think i'm overstating it no
1: no 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 there was, there, that has never changed that kind of curiosity did you have a band in high school Yes. I had a band for a little while in high school. That did not, uh, Junior high did not go well. How many songs? Like a four song band or you Yeah, have a something whole, like that. Four song you band, you'd play like <laughs> a battle of the band in the school cafeteria, and the other band would come over, sneak behind, and pull out the plug. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I thought, oh. Do you remember the set there's list? was a level of ruthlessness. Yes. Yeah. In, <laughs> in music. Yeah, in music that I, I didn't a, know about.
0: A lesson you needed to learn early. <laughs> yes. What? Do you um, remember the set list?
1: It was probably whatever was. Everybody was probably like I can't get no satisfaction and stuff sure, like that that sure. seemed fairly easy to play, three-chord yeah. rock kind of stuff that you could play. And then I kind of that without that band kind of decided to do go alone, go it alone and started learning acoustic guitar, started playing in kind of local coffee houses. <laughs> oh really? Kind of folk folk venues. You were doing and then but not playing folk music. I started playing kind of rock music on a in Acoustic guitar, ukulele, uh-huh. and violin. I still had the violin. Um,
0: really? Do you brought like? The I would play the fairly columnist? aggressive rock yeah.
1: songs on the ukulele. Um, These original compositions?
0: No, okay. it was nothing original. It was so all there was it discovers. There was something I- ironic and funny about it then as well.
1: Yeah, or I was taking it and giving it a twist. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't. It wasn't. It was meant to kind of not skew the material, but kind of throw it out of context so you heard it in a different way. Ah. And what happened? was, you know, because I loved the material that I was, the bands and stuff I was Do you remember what you were playing on the ukulele? Um, Heavy, heavy guitar stuff, but I would do it on a ukulele. (laughs) And it was to kind of throw it in a new context so people could hear hear the actual song instead of just hearing what, you know, the cliche that they knew. How were you received? People really liked it. They said, they said, who wrote the I mean, this is like a folky crowd. Right, right, sure. And they'd never heard any oddly enough, they'd never heard any of these songs because they're isolated in their little folky ghetto. Right, yeah. And they hear this stuff and go, Who wrote that yeah. stuff? And I go, I'm thinking to myself, this is just a big hit on the radio. On the you know, pop <laughs> what it. FM AM radio. Yeah. And I thought, they're in they don't know this stuff. So yeah. I said this is working in my favor. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: got something going. I got to build out my catalog. I got yes, to yes, a bigger it, set list. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, come back with some uh, some Hendrix stuff. <laughs> I'm just not going to know what's going on. So then at RISD, you, you put together the original heads? Yeah, there was a,
1: um, or a band that kind of led into it. There was exactly the drummer and uh, the drummer Chris and I, and some other people were in a, in a band there, and we played school What What's it called? The artistic's yeah, and we played school dances and out you know outdoors on the patios and things like that and we were incredibly noisy. But then we started to have I started to write stuff for the band right. So then there was started some original stuff and I realized oh I know how I can do this. Sure, right. What was the first
0: song you wrote that you thought like wow this is it? Psycho Killer was really was that was that that early.
1: Yeah, that was like proof of concept. Oh, Um, yeah. Let me see if I can write a song. And I had a concept. um, And I just went with, followed the concept. It wasn't me expressing something about myself. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, let me see if I can write a song. And here's what the subject's going to be. And here's the the way I'm going to approach it. And I realized, oh, it works. And then further on, you go, oh, it works. And people like it. Right. Um, I guess I know how to do this. And after that... After that one song, I thought, okay, I used that to see as, you know, writing about something that basically I didn't care about at all. I didn't give a shit about the subject. But then I thought everything else is going to be actually come from me and a little bit more from now on. Right. After song number one. Point every, of view. Yeah, everything else. is not directly me, but it's it's more I can defend it. Right. In some way. In, in Psycho Killer, so
0: that was just sort of an experiment? It was almost a, a, a joke in a way?
1: Well, not really a joke, but kind of a, yeah, an exper- definitely an experiment to see, like, can I write a song? Yeah. And it was just you and Chris? It was me and Chris and his girlfriend at the time, Tina.
0: And, oh, so she was there, too.
1: Yep, yep. She didn't was definitely just... help, she was helping with the, the French part there. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, definitely.
0: <laughs> you didn't know any French? But you asked Tina. I knew it a little bit,
1: but not well enough.
0: How did you meet Jerry Harrison?
1: Uh, we were a trio. So we got we went to New York, formed um, what became Talking Heads. But what, it was, where'd the trio, name come from? Do you remember? A kind of a B movie that was on television. Uh-huh. We were looking at TV guide. And right. It was called whatever the Talking Head. Or, oh, really? Okay. Or something like yeah. that. And and we thought, oh, that's. Yeah. You know, it was some kind of sci-fi horror movie. Right. And we thought, oh, that's a good. That's a good. Let's try that one. And we because we changed band names. This is before we played audition and played anywhere mm-hmm. I would make kind of drum heads for the bass drum for the kick drum and put a different band name on like every week just kind of like let's see how it feels to be called The Dots <laughs> <laughs> you did that every week Yes, I'd make a,
0: a, you know, a circular piece of cardboard. Yeah, And then as your fan base group, people were going like, why don't they get their own drums?
1: <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> why do they got to use other bands' drums all the time? Yes. Who are the what dots?
1: Is who, what, who is the, what is this? <laughs> um, so, yeah. Eventually we realized, okay, we, we we got this. We can kind of do this. I think we need to have a fourth person to kind of actually flesh out the sound and we were all big fans of uh, this group that Jerry was in, the Modern Lovers. Jonathan Richmond. Yeah, it's a great record that first yeah, it's, record. That, just amazing. Um, and so we knew that Jerry was sort of, I guess, what you would say, out of a job in some way. That band kind of parted ways. They did quickly, right? I mean, they did it fairly quickly right after they recorded these incredible demos that got released as a record. They, Jonathan, decided that he wanted to do. B- go kind of more acoustic and right and uh more childlike more childlike and that that stuff was a little more too aggressive and and sad or angry or whatever for him but uh so the band was kind of left at loose ends and or some of them anyway so we went to jerry and said you want to try playing with us for a little bit come down rehearse see what you see if you like it um and we tried a few gigs, like in we did a gig in like Worcester, Mass. At, Ooh. Uh, at some so little places. Worcester. Yeah, to see if Jerry liked the idea, because he was really scared of dipping his toe in the water. Really, after he'd just been through the his you know the band. So was a little heartbroken. His heart was broken. He yeah. he didn't want to like. I'm not going to go back into that. Right. Uh, and eventually, he did, and yeah. it really kind of took us to another level, because then with four people, you the, the songs. Everybody wasn't trying to carry everything in the songs. Right, right. You could you could change the texture. He could play a keyboard on one song and a guitar on a different song. You or, could
0: trust people a little, different, a little yeah, more. Yeah, like you could play, do there. And yeah,
1: work. you'd do that. You play this part, I'll play this part, and together we'll kind of it kind of cre- will flesh things out.
0: Well, that became sort of like because it seems to me that you know as you know the more musicians you played with, and even the Talking head stuff, that there was a real consciousness of of keeping it sparse, but but letting things stand on their own.
1: Absolutely, but, that was kind of an art school thing in a way. Yeah, that the 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 sounds had to have integrity. Um, every sound had to be what it was and not pretend to be something else. And everything, at least was, that's, this is the way I interpreted it, and that everything, um, you should be able t- to hear it in its kind of pristine form. Right. So there was very little, like, distortion or any right. of that kind of stuff. That all came later, but um, <laughs> it was yeah. kind of like, we're going to st- have strip everything down to its basics. It's going to be very clean and just a, like a clean sketch. Uh-huh. The barest bones of what you need. To,
0: and you all agreed on that. There's a discussion yeah, you yeah. had.
1: I, I don't remember the discussion, but it was all kind sure. of tacitly agreed. understood.
0: Yeah, that that's that's what we were going to do. And you did that for like at least the first
1: two albums. Yes, I would say so. And then, kind of, then, yeah. then we can kind of went we can crazy do crazy. add more people. Yes, and if we're, we're not know.
0: willing to compromise the integrity of the sound, we can bring that guy in. Yes, he's the master of that noise.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> and then we can do that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right, so. I guess the other question that I have, and we'll move through it. We're not being nostalgic. We're just discussing. Okay. The scene in New York, because like I've been curious personally, after reading, like you know, I read McNeil's book, you know, the uh, Police Kill Me book, Uh and that you know, just the thought of of how many different types of bands were here in in the early to mid seventies and running around this this neighborhood, pounding away at CBs and everything else, and how they all defined themselves. Do you remember
1: that period well? Was there a competitive nature to the scene? Oh, no. It was, uh, I remember it pretty well. Um, I was maybe a little socially withdrawn, so I wasn't like hanging out with everybody. But we were all in the same bars and hanging out and yeah. playing music. I remember it as being fairly uh, supportive, mm-hmm. that each band was kind of very supportive of each other, um they would check out each other's sets and applaud and oh really hang out at the bar when the other one is playing and um do you remember bands that you liked watching oh yeah like who um in that period kind of yeah. playing sometimes on the same bill with us would be television or, or ramones or yeah. talking uh, patty smith there were other groups like the mumps uh later on like dead boys and oh yeah but oddly okay those are the ones some of the those are ones that People remember and they get documented in right. some of the, the those books that have been written. But there was all these other ones. There was like folk there was like a kid, um Steve Forbert, a folk singer from Mississippi, who came in and he became part of the yeah. thing. Not punky at all. Yeah. There was another like progressive jazz group, I forget what they were called. They were like a progressive jazz group where they'd gone to Berkeley or whatever. Oh really? And these kids could really, really play. Right. And sing and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We were just our jaws dropped and it was kind of like uh what is what is that doing here <laughs> yeah, what, and, and what are we doing <laughs> yes. um but all that was kind of accepted yeah yeah uh, and which was kind of kind of great it didn't it, it wasn't until later where Things maybe got a little more competitive, but at that
0: point, it was everyone's just doing it. And it everybody's was new. doing
1: it. it was everybody's supportive. Everybody's just trying to survive. And what, did you find
0: that that people influenced their sounds? Do you remember listening to people and going like, "That's you know, that's interesting how they're handling that," and that like there was mutual influence going on?
1: I'm sure there was, but it's uh, hard. You, uh, you, yeah, you yeah. You just kinda... But I'm mm, I'm not so aware of it.
0: Yeah. Do you have friends from that time
1: still? Wow, I don't think I do. I mean, yeah, yeah. Kind of some of the more. Artier people. Oh, yeah, right, right. Um, I sort of... Still hang s- around? I'm still hanging around, still in touch with it, but... Uh, the
0: musicians, some of it, the... Musicians,
1: not as much.
0: They get pretty beat up, some of them.
1: <laughs> some of them do. Some of them do, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Like, I listen uh, to the song Heaven a lot, because I think it's uh, hilarious. Mm-hmm. Was it
1: supposed to be hilarious? Well, it's supposed to have a little twist. It has a little twist in the lyrics there, <laughs> and... <laughs> Do you write but for comedy I, sometimes? I do kind of. I if I can make myself laugh <laughs> right. or chuckle or go, oh, that's a, that's the craziest idea, um, or yeah, I don't know, Sometimes it's a very small laugh. It's kind of an amused, sure, sure. an amused laugh.
0: Well, heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. Yes. No. I thought
1: in. I can defend that idea yeah. as a concept. Yeah. But it is backwards from what. Right. What you right? Respect. What the assumption is? Yeah. Yeah, backwards from yeah the assumption. Right. And but I can defend it as an idea. Yeah, and, uh, I think it
0: is defensible.
1: Yeah, and so I thought it's not crazy. I'm not just doing this as a kind of crazy joke, but at the same time, it is kind of you get a little bit of amusement out of it. Right, right. But yeah. I like the idea that it's it, it's not offensive,
0: and if you really think about it, you're like, wow, that is kind of true. It might be mm-hmm. a little boring up there.
1: Yes, <laughs> it's all good. it's all perfect, and it just never changes. It's all the same thing over and over again, and. um uh, there's another song, I think, from that same album, album called Animals where yeah. I had the idea of like, oh, you know, everybody th- thinks we should be, we think of animals as being like more pure, more ideal, yeah. more, less less uh, corrupted, whatever, than right. we are. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to write from the opposite point of view that animals are fucked up and <laughs> Horrible. annoying, yeah. whatever, they don't know how to behave, yeah. whatever, all, all the kind of things like that. And, that, and you, somehow you put it into a song uh what sounds like an intellectual idea or a joke or whatever when you start you put it into a song and you sing it and you've suddenly invested this what might be kind of a goofy idea with all this emotion right because it's being sung yes with a groove and everything else and which gives it a whole different meaning it's not just like me telling you i'm going to write a song about this right it has a more visceral feeling.
0: Right. You're not just sharing an idea. You're yeah, making Yeah. It
1: has, it has, a, there's an emotion attached uh-huh. uh, to this thing that is kind, kind of nutty. <laughs> yeah. And,
0: and also open for interpretation and, yes. and able to affect everyone differently. Yes. It's, that's yeah. the magic of it. So, now it's, I, I think that we can, without, you know, uh, getting hung up on, on, on and now I'm uh, self conscious about the past, but the relationship with Brian Eno lasted up till it still goes on. Oh yeah, yeah. I saw him a couple of weeks ago. Now, how did that start? How did that creative relationship start? Because it, st- it happened in the second record, and it w- lasted throughout your career. We were fans of his
1: from Roxy Music and some of his other stuff that he'd done—the solo uh, stuff, right? Yeah, a little bit. Some of the solo stuff that we knew about, and this would be late '70s. Right, it was quite okay. a while ago. Another musician that we knew from CBGBs in downtown New York, this guy John Cale, who was in sure. Velvet Underground. Right, we were. Doing, I think, our first ever London gig. Okay. And KL happened to be there, but he'd seen us a lot in New York. And he brought Brian and said, Oh, this is Brian, you know, I think you're going to like this group. Right. And we got along really well with him. We just chatted and, you know, yeah, 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 blah, 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 blah. blah." And we weren't talking about music. We were talking about who knows what. Right. Yeah. uh, Which was exciting for us to have a kind of producer, in this case, a producer or somebody like that. Who could talk about other stuff besides music like what oh art yeah art or uh science or sure the one
0: thing that amazed me about him was he said that his favorite band was the velvet underground specifically because of i think the way that they produced the the sound sound sounded produced like like and i never really put it together how why that would make sense but when you listen to like live in 69 or something where there's long periods of, of and you can hear the rhythms you know mm-hmm. kind of layered up like that you know i could see how that would influence him but it did, at that moment like i realized that his his musical sensibility was was vast and and, and very unique mm-hmm. you must have influenced each other through this partnership
1: somehow oh yeah yeah i think it was it was kind of mutual he was kind of uh shortly after that he was writing stuff that was his attempt to sound like us. Right, right. And, of course, we, we were already fans of his stuff. So, yeah, we started working together with him producing our records. And, and how does that,
0: like, I, I never quite understand how, what, what is that? Because when I listen to, like, My Life and the Bush of Ghosts, like this stuff you just did mm-hmm. with him, and then you listen to the, the Talking Heads album, you know they, they all are, are fairly different sounding. But, I mean, what is that dynamic? How does the creativity work between the band and, and a guy like Brian Nino? What does he, what does he say? Just basically, what is
1: he going? No, could you turn that up? I mean, what, what is it? There's a little bit of that. Can you turn that up? Can you make that sound a little more whatever? Yeah. There's a little bit of that, but actually not very much of that. It's more like the first record we worked with him on. It was He basically just said, you guys sound great. My job on this record, anyway, is just basically to capture what you sound like live, but do it in the studio
0: and that was the, that was fear of music
1: that was the one before that it was called more more songs, songs about, about buildings and food Okay. Yeah. and then fear of music was um, a record th- our third record so we'd come to the point where we were about to exhaust the early kind of material that we'd right. written and accumulated so you get to the point of oh now we got to write new stuff yeah which is always the big kind of like issue with bands and musicians and whatever like can you write new stuff or was it just like i had one idea it's i've drained it and right, there's right. nothing more yeah
0: um and it's not stelling big enough for us to repeat it over and over again necessarily yes not right. quite right
1: <laughs> <And> <laughs> so we were we still had this incredible fear of, going, of recording studios. It seemed like a foreign environment. The third record, yes, yeah. around that time, but just all, in general. And he sensed that he, and so he said, "Okay, we'll record all the tracks at home in your reco- in your loft where you, where some, the drummer and bass player lived. We'll just bring up a, a remote truck, one of those recording trucks." now you could do it on a laptop right but it was at that point you had to bring in a, t- a whole truck so it was a big deal we're parking yeah, the truck outside we park the truck outside snake the cables in the window <laughs> so you guys are comfortable yeah so we could be comfortable which is a huge deal yeah because otherwise we would pl- the playing suffered and it sounded yeah. terrible the sounds right. were terrible we played terrible this sound we could actually kind of play and groove the way we liked but it was the first time where on some of the songs I had to then take the those tracks and go home and make a song out of it. It wasn't a right. finished it wasn't a finished song. So uh, so you'd write in you, you the, the improvisation would be the
0: writing of the song sometimes.
1: Yes, sometimes it'd be an improvisation, sometimes it'd be something that uh, I would say, you know, to the band do this, do this, do, and then do this or some repeat some kind of jam that we did. Right. And I realized we can do that I can write lyrics and a melody over it, and voila, it's yeah. a song. And uh, I think Brian saw that too, and maybe he'd written in that way in the past as well. So kind of, you know, step by step, it kind of takes you to a com- not just that's interesting, not just turn that louder and right. make that softer, but your way of writing and, and evolving creating. the sounds. Yeah, this, the whole thing evolves. It's layering, yeah, in yeah. A way. layering in a way and creating things in the studio that right, way. Right, right, as opposed is,
0: to coming up with a pop song yeah, and, and which, then going, "Now there you go, and boom. Yes,
1: which is not to say that that's invalid, but just to say, oh, here's another way of working, and you end by working this other way, you end up with stuff that you would never come up with if you just sat down and tried to write a pop song. Right. You end up with kind of more kind of weirder sounds and sure. outer arrangements because it's you're not thinking about Oh, here's the chorus or whatever.
0: You're taking chances and you're jamming.
1: Yeah, and so that was that was great.
0: Yeah, and then like and then you started to add by uh, by uh, uh, remaining light. Then you're broadening out the musicians.
1: Yes, we we're adding other musicians. We we're taking that concept even further. Where we go into the studio with almost nothing. And nothing. Gra- yeah, almost nothing. Which nowadays I would consider an extravagance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, we were doing all right commercially. So, we could afford to spend two weeks jamming in the studio and just saving the good parts.
0: But that's when, you, by, at that point in the studio, were you involving how many musicians? Did you bring in musicians to do? No, certain it was things? basically just the four of us. Okay,
1: some other musicians would come in and do overdubs, but and it, it gave the mistaken impression that we were a larger band in the studio because when we then had to reproduce that live, we had to like double the size of the band. Right, because we'd kind of done all these crazy overdubs and with uh, with
0: Rural, R- Bernie, Bernie Warrell R- and, and Fripp.
1: And, yeah, those all those people. And Adrian Blue was a yes. part of that too. Yes.
0: Well, how's that guy doing?
1: He's uh, he's doing great. He's like a record producer and does his own stuff in Nashville. Yeah, it doesn't some... mean country. It means you know. He's right. Down... Oh, so he's down there.
0: Yeah. Like you know, I learned a lot about a lot of different people through you, through people that uh-huh. you like. That was the other thing that 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 the Talking Heads and David Byrne you know solo and with the heads you know brought to me as just a kid or as a guy who was trying to learn about things i'm like who's twilight tharp <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. this
0: record's fucking amazing what goes with it you know like the the katherine uh, uh-huh. wheel yeah. i listened to the hell out of that record well, i never great. saw it i never saw it like and uh, i was in college i should have been seeing things but like the knee plays too when that came out i'm like i love this record i have no idea you know, like I know uh, Robert Wilson. I know there's ladders involved and it's yes, long. Yes,
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you
0: know, uh, and I and I got it. I read about stuff, but I wasn't getting out into the uh-huh. and doing it much. So that stuff blew my mind. But the whole you know, Burn Eno Matrix of of people like you know John Hassel mm-hmm. and 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 Fripp and Baloo, These were all you know a type of music that
1: was it, it rarer to me. It was rare and yes, exotic. yeah, yeah. And that was in a way me reproducing or us reproducing kind of the experiences I had with the transmission. My, yeah. The adolescence. Yeah. And whatever. You were sending out, it was your yeah, version so like, of the now it's my turn to do that. <laughs>
0: you to bring, to make people go like,
1: where's this coming from? Yes. To do what the same thing that happened to me, but now, well, you did like, it. Yes. To some
0: extent. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm like, cause I've talked to other bands like, you know, and I know other bands have had problems with it. I have to assume at some point you looked out at an audience and said, how is that guy like me?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. What, yes, is this, have I been misinterpreted <laughs> in some way? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, there wa- I, I remember that we had a song called Life During Wartime that had a chorus that goes the Saint No Party, the Saint No Disco. What it was meant to imply was I don't have time for nightlife because I'm doing I'm involved in urban revolution at the moment. Right. Excuse me. Yeah. But because of the wording it, and it it came out at the exact time where there was it seemed to be this conflict between kind of disco music, discotheques, DJs, and kind of live hard rock right. music, and right. it was it was like there was a lot of racism involved in that kind of schism, uh-huh. but and so the song was picked up as being like an anthem, an anthem of this ain't no disco, yeah, and we don't basically to say we don't like disco music, right? That's for whatever. Yeah, fags and, and black people. Right, and so, but it was never intended that way. I right. realized oh, things can really get misinterpreted. <laughs> you uh, and how, how worried do I have to be about being clear? Right, is this going to is this something that's really going to obsess me? And uh, well, or it's, a, it's uh, a repercussion of mainstream success. In a yes, way. It, of course, and the ambiguity that's in, in music, a lot of in, in music songs. and songs and uh-huh. that's. That's part of the greatness of right
0: the form right is that it can be misinterpreted by morons and used as an anthem for negativity
1: exactly <laughs> yes there you go <laughs> that's a, the liability yes. <laughs> yes like whatever Ronald Reagan wanting to use Born in the USA whatever. right exactly
0: yeah it's tricky huh mm-hmm. did that did that make you recoil I mean did that did that. Like once the the top of uh, the Talking Heads popularity was there an element of you that was like I got to pull back and, and and insulate in in a different type of
1: creativity to some extent yeah to some extent I felt like I don't want to be a big pop star right. I have all these interests and I want to maintain that right and keep a kind of be a balanced interested curious human being and not be sucked into the whole world of celebrity and. And repetition. And be, yeah, and repetition and you then you're expected to do right. something like the thing you did before right. Right. or you always have to top it or it has to always has to be bigger and better or right. whatever and I just thought, "Oh, that's like a treadmill. I don't am not sure I want to get on."
0: Yeah, and also just the fight the 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 fight, you know, to 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 maintain and 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 uh, grow your creativity in the face of the record business.
1: Uh-huh. There are people who can do it.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean it, not forever.
1: Yeah, definitely not forever. And if, yeah, I just thought, oh, I'm pretty happy. I'm not sure I want to right. deal and with it, that. It, and, and I imagine that when you guys were making
0: music, the Chris and Tina, Jerry and you, that was very highly collaborative, right? I mean, yeah, you, for, you, the uh-huh. uh, for the most part. Uh huh. For the most part. Yeah, yeah. It
1: depended on the record. Sure, depended sure. Do you get along with them, all of them? I get along with Jerry, yeah. The others, okay. The others, we don't get along.
0: Oh really? There's, yeah. Wait, just from old
1: stuff. Yeah, kind of old stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's sad, right? It is sad. Yeah.
0: You seem to manage to maintain an artistic integrity and keep growing creatively in all these different areas. I mean, you know, working with Twilight, Art, working with uh, with Robert Wilson. You know, outside of music, that that seemed to be at some point as compelling as, as just doing records.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It had the feeling of. The same feeling, some of it anyway, had the same feeling of the kind of excitement and uh, genre-breaking and curiosity and let's-see-what-happens and experimentation that I felt music was supposed to have also. Right. But here it was happening in, in theater or dance or some various other mediums, whatever it might be. And I thought, oh, it's the same feeling, the same vibe, the same excitement. That right. I first started getting from music, right. but it also exists in some of these other areas as well, and you can be part of it, and I can be part of that. And I thought that's well, that's interesting, um, that's thrilling.
0: Well, it's interesting because in music you can integrate, like in a lot as 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 you grew creatively, musically, and you integrated a lot of different sounds and rhythms and textures from, from other countries and, and, and other types of music that, with film, music is an integral part of the process, but it has to be collaborative. So you, you are actually part of filmmaking if you are asked to be.
1: Exactly, and yeah, if you're doing that, you,
0: you're expected to yeah, collaborate, to, give and
1: take. And, and
0: the, the, honor the vision of, of, of the director, exactly. I imagine.
1: And not everybody, not every musician enjoys doing that. Right, that kind of puzzle solving, or or creatively supporting the vision of, but you, like somebody doing else. It. Yeah, I thought it was great a great challenge. Really to to solve that puzzle, but do something kind of exciting at the same time.
0: You probably have a little more freedom with dance, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with some film stuff, yeah, the, the director will kind of give you kind of. A little bit of carte blanche, and then uh-huh. I'll just go. Yeah, but that one didn't work. Right, right, right. Who yeah, and you've worked with Bertolucci? Oh, Bernardo and, Bertolucci, yeah. right. And then with Jonathan
0: Demme a couple of times. And- well, he's great. Yeah, though you did some of the stuff on Something Wild, right? Yes. And then you did your own movie, which I loved. Well, thank you. I mean, I went and saw it immediately. I mean, like, I forget sometimes just how into you know what you do I am. Like. A- <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But, you know, no, but it's true. Because, like, uh-huh. I, you know, I was very excited to talk to you. Like, what was that movie based on for you? It was
1: based on...
0: True Stories, we're talking
1: about. Yeah, a movie called True Stories, and it was set in yeah. Texas, and it fought a bunch of kind of quirky characters all in a little town in Texas. Right. And their stories and their characters were based on... A lot of uh, odd human interest stories that I'd read in the weekly world news, okay. which is kind of one step down from the Inquirer. And you kind yeah. of played this sort of like uh, this guide. Yes, I was a guy from out of town right. who was kind of the guide and was kind of interested in what was going on in this town, that they were going to have this little, this they were going to put on a show, the people in the town. Yeah. Uh, I was interested in talking to them. I was fascinated by them. And, but, and to try and fit in... Uh, because it was Texas I I wore a western outfit. Right. Of course big nobody, hat. nobody yes, nobody else big hat. Yeah. Yeah. You know the jackets and everything sure. else. Nobody else wore a western outfit but for some reason being the out of towner I thought that's what I should do to blend yeah, yeah. in. Right. And That makes sense. Uh it was it was kind of interesting in that well I got to I had a great, great time doing it. I uh, really loved it. But I realized that in some places it was perceived as being Uh, Hilarious And Texans Texans in particular Loved it They did Yes They did not think it was They thought The way it made fun of Kind of the Quirks of Texans And all that kind of stuff They loved that Because they were actually Kind of Secretly proud Of how kind of Odd and quirky And Sure Whatever they can be Right Um, Other people Thought that it was being Deeply ironic And Condescending Condescending To them uh, Which was never intended it was more. The intention was more like what I described with the color guard stuff mm-hmm. to kind of really celebrate the kind of uniqueness and originality and quirkiness and and kind of vernacular creativity right. that goes on out in the middle right. of nowhere. And uh, I realized that I realized this again just the other day too that. Sometimes if you, you present things almost verbatim as uh-huh. what they are, because you're a New Yorker or whatever,
0: well, you're David Byrne. Yeah,
1: and <laughs> the, and some of the people who are looking at it are sort of whatever arty types as well. They bring the irony to it. Uh, they look at it and, and because they look down their noses, or they assume that I they well, right. assume that I look down my noses right. at people in a small town, in Texas. Then they view it through those goggles. Um, right. And they're not willing
0: to take responsibility for their own condescension, they're gonna hang it on you. Like they're I yes, think yes. Yeah.
1: And they just assume that I'm like them and so I'm gonna and I'm right. feeling the same way and and, and that I couldn't possibly be, be embracing it. And be embracing it. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's well that's interesting. And I wanted to also
0: say uh the knee plays. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, where, where are you going with this? Well, that, I thought that, that was a, a celebration of American music.
1: Yes. Yeah, that was uh, originally I wanted to. Like Gershwin almost. In, in some ways. Um, it was kind of problem solving. It was done for a theater piece. This Robert Wilson theater piece. I can't and imagine
0: I, what's he like. Is he still around?
1: He's still around. He's still around. He works mainly in Europe. He gets more. There's more funding. For you guys it. were buddies. I mean, did you? In- I worked with him twice. That's, oh, well, that's pretty. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. good because it's it's big it's, projects. It's a big project, and uh, it can be pretty bizarre. The whole working. Right, situation. and it's so
0: weird because I came to it just as a record, and I listened to. It. I just got it. I had to go find it again. I got mm-hmm. it again, and I listened to it, and I love it. So it's problem solving. What were you going to say? It was
1: problem solving. You knew that in this particular case, the theater stuff was going to be done in these short little segments. Mm-hmm. There was going to be, let's see, uh, scenery being changed backstage. So there might be a little bit of noise. So the music had to be loud enough that it would cover up that stuff. So I thought, okay, brass instruments. We're going to use, we'll use brass instruments. Um, <laughs> so you wouldn't hear the noise. Yeah, see, so we'll cover up the noise of the big sets being moved across the okay. stage. Horns. Need yeah. horns. Yeah, we need some horns to do this. That'll do the job. Horns and drums <laughs> will do the job. And a lot of um, Bob's stuff is very kind of trance-like. And yeah. This is his, he's, as a visual director. This is part of the Civil Wars, right? Yeah. Like this. And so I thought, well, there's a lot of kind of the the groove and the, in in a lot of Brass band music, especially out of New Orleans, right. that kind of thing that has a little bit of that, but it's a lot funkier. Right. I mean, it, it kind of moves right. your whole body, and it's not just um, a kind of a rep- repetition. And I thought, maybe I can do that. Maybe I can bring a little bit of swing and funk into, right. into that kind of repetition and trancy kind of thing. And so I f- first tried to work on the material with the uh, Dirty Dozen Brass Band out of New Orleans, and yeah. I w- went down there and hung out with them and tried to do that. Didn't work because I had, I had kind of everything written out. Yeah. And they they kind of you do head arrangements. They kind of work things out in their heads and through rehearsal and right, playing right. in clubs oh, right. and they kind of work it out that way. And I realized, okay, this is a mismatch. Right.
0: But you're not going to be able to get them to follow what you need. No. Right.
1: And so I worked with you know other musicians, right. great musicians, and it worked out fine. And
0: and you can write the music.
1: No, but I could kind of do it. Track by track, like I could right. play the, whole, the right. trumpet line on on something else, and that's how you built it out. Built it up that way, and then occasionally would but write ca- these l- odd little kind of stories to go right. over some of the yeah. songs. These odd little scenarios that who knows what that that was about, but I really enjoyed it. But that's the kind of things he does, where it's just it's it's, it's about layers. There's visual stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a, t- a layer of voice and maybe speaking or singing or whatever, and there's music, he and kind of other kind of, the kind of artier fringe of that theater world, they tend to think of that stuff as all running parallel. Like this, this, the, what you're looking at is one thing, what the way people dress might be another thing, the sound, the words, whatever, they're all running parallel, but they're not always telling the same narrative story. Right, right. Um, That's it's it. more so of kind an impressionistic, right. surrealistic thing going on where it all exists simultaneously, and when it works, it's very, very ambiguous, and you can kind of... But the trick it, is the balance. The trick is the balance, and the audience kind of, in some ways, makes the meaning in huh. their heads. Well, you if worked I, with the...
0: I mean, your first wife was an artist, right? Yeah, yeah. And you worked with her on True Stories, and...
1: She worked on True Stories, right, and yeah.
0: And did some... I remember there was costumes and stuff, right? Am I remembering mm-hmm. that properly?
1: Yes, it... Uh, excuse me. There was a shopping. There was a fashion. Oh, that's right. A the fashion, fashion show, show. in the right. shopping that's hall. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with the local people, right? They made these kind of fantastic outfits.
0: And what about like the collaboration? Like you were just so tapped in. Like you know what I saw just the other day. My buddy Dan, who used to own a record store here, Give Me, Give Me Records, down on Eighth Street, and now mm-hmm. he, he's out in L.A. By me, he's got a uh, the. Uh, was it Speaking in Tongues that Rauschenberg did the,
1: the Yes. Best? Yeah. I I love Bob Rauschenberg's work, especially his the kind of photo-based work that yeah. he was doing quite a bit of at that time. And so when we were kind of working on this record, I said to the band, what if I track him down and see if... Because there was, Andy Warhol was doing record covers. Right, and right. The other people were doing record covers. And I thought, oh, let me track down yeah. Rauschenberg <laughs> yeah, and see, see if, if he'll do, do a record cover it. for yeah. us. And he agreed, loved the idea. Um, but, of course, he didn't want to just do, you know... An image that we could then slap onto right. a cardboard sleeve. He wanted to rethink the whole idea of what the package. So is. you were in, You're, and I thought yeah. i love that. Right. That's so great. Of course, it meant the whole the record release had to be held up well I figured out the packaging and how to manufacture this turning. <laughs> yeah, was that the one of like me is, and my big ideas? Yes, moments? me and my big ideas, and now how, look how complicated it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was beautiful, but yeah. yes, it was a little more than we bargained for. Oh, that's hilarious. All
0: right, so I like what you're saying about funk and groove and movement, because like, you, you have a very specific way of grooving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that became apparent like in live performance and, and also in the different types of rhythms that you, that you sort of talk about. It's interesting because like in talking to you and in just making assumptions about who you are, I wouldn't think that you grew up as a, as a dancing man.
1: No, I did not grow up as a dancing man. I was just
0: socially fairly shy. When did that confidence start to build? I hear it in your voice as you progress, but there was some point where you just were wide open. And you start and moving dancing. around on stage.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm going to say somewhere early, mid-80s, mid, mid 80s, where the band expanded from being kind of this core kind of rock band to this big kind of funk ensemble. Right. And so the, the vibe on stage was more ecstatic, uh-huh. In some ways, trance-like, that it was repetitive, and you would just kind of—it would command you to kind of surrender to the groove. And did you need that personally? I needed it personally. It was kind of personally liberating. This was like—I didn't go to a shrink, but I, yeah, this was that—that that music was my shrink, and it kind of liberated me personally, both you know, physically and mentally and psychologically, and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, wow, here we go. I'm you know, it's a total cliche, but here I am. I'm getting healed. The music is healing me. It's turning in me. That, and it's getting kind of Help me out in my personal life. Right. I don't mean like introducing me to girls or whatever, but right. it's it's really kind of helping me... Open up. Do, open up Embrace. and have joy. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, joy. I'm starting to have a good time. Whereas before, I would kind of have a good time, but it was also kind of this desperation. Well, you were like to be a sort <laughs> of... <laughs> you can hear it in the, the early stuff. It's desperate. Desperate, but also like awkward. Yes, yeah. And there's something nice about that awkwardness The people hear and they identify it with because everybody has a little bit of sure. it. Sure, I can never get that back. I'm glad it, it's gone. <laughs> it's gone. I'm glad it was there and came out. But uh, yes, and then you move on to something else. And you, of grew course, up. And you, you grew up. It wasn't you grew up it and wasn't. you ask yourself, well, did I lose the thing that everybody really liked? But no, I don't think so. You find something else.
0: Well, also, I think that what you answered and I think it's a good way to sort of move towards the end of this is that you know, once you found that groove, once you found that joy, once you found that, that, that healing, it seemed to me that what you were doing through, you know, uh, pursuing and embracing all these different types of music and these different types of rhythm was, was making an attempt to be a channel to share all that stuff.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you were uh, which is kind of what I do now more than kind of pointing to myself. Right. I find myself doing things like this color guard thing and I'm, Doing this, and festi- the book too. The book the is book fascinating. Is a lot of that. Like, yeah, the, there was a festival in, in August in England called Meltdown, which is basically you kind of invite a lot of bands, uh-huh. and people to perform, and it's not a big moneymaker that that yeah. way of life. But it's really nice to be able to kind of occasionally exercise that thing and, go, and do what other people did for me and for you and say, check this out, right? Check this out, and check, you might like a curator. It. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it gets overused, but it's, yeah, but right. it's really yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you've got to be okay money-wise. I mean, <laughs> I'm mean, i doing fine. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing fine. I'm a, a, well enough that I can do this kind of stuff. Well, what is
0: going on here? I mean, we're at, uh, what is it, Totomundo?
1: Totomundo is the name of this office. It's on Lower Broadway. Is it
0: a label? Is it a... a no, a, it's well,
1: just a kind of, it's just an overall thing. It's not a record label.
0: I is it? Have a label a print, for the a while. publishing label? I mean, yeah, sometimes we do this books. This is your office though, right? Yeah,
1: we do there's books occasionally and other kind of projects. And so that's and like if we're doing like the color guard thing, right? It, that's the Comes kind through of, here? That, yeah, How is this different
0: they, than the pop?
1: Luaka pop was a record label. Okay. Still exists, but my partner in the record label kind of does it somewhere else.
0: Oh, you're still involved with it?
1: Uh, I still I'm I'm on good terms with them. I get but it. it was eaten up a lot of hours right and it's and money a, right and it's also interesting that like the towards the end of
0: the, the heads and then into your solo career, that was sort of, like i cuz i was I was talking about it with somebody else like the other day it seemed like like after a certain point the music just got sort of like happy <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that uh-huh. we moved through something how yeah. was the how was the dissolution of the heads in, into your to the first record which was more uh what was your first back re 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 Ray momo Ray momo was yeah i did a full-on full
1: latin so. kind of thing right. after that was that just to, to sort of like this we're we're often a different thing you're often a different thing uh yes and to say like well we didn't break up just because i wanted to do you right. know my own kind of Talking Heads record. I wanted we broke up because I wanted to do something very was different. Was it bad, the breakup? It was, it was not good. Right. But, it, um, I mean, there's, there have been worse. Right. But, um, but it was not good. And I don't think any of them are really good. Right. But, okay, we got through it. Okay. And doing kind of the Latin music was kind of taking that, that whole kind of surrender to the groove, right. whatever thing, one step further. It's amazing. Um. I really enjoyed it. The touring part especially with the big Latin band was ecstatic. Wow. Um, although, <laughs> I think <laughs> one of... One of the guys at Warner Brothers Records said to me, "David, you're your own Yoko Ono." Oh my God! <laughs> wow, that's that's probably the worst thing anyone could ever say to you. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Yoko. <laughs> Do you know her? I've met her. Yes. Yeah, now,
0: yeah. now let's close with the, this uh, this Saint Vincent business because uh, you know I interviewed her and she's amazing, uh-huh. and and you work with her. Yes. Specifically, I have that record. What is it? Out, you know, out of all the people, like you know that she's an American artist. Mm-hmm. And you know, out of sort of like you know, you being an international uh, frequency and groove man, you sort of somehow land with uh, with St. Vincent on a record and, and supporting her career. What was it about her?
1: I was a big fan of her stuff. I'd seen her live and uh-huh. her first probably couple of records, and thought this this girl's really talented. Yeah. I'm not just talking about as a guitar player, but just oh, yeah. she's really doing something really interesting. And uh, so it was a little charity over on Crosby street, this kind of AIDS place. uh, They would do these in a used bookstore. They would do these little concerts as AIDS benefits and they would invite different artists to collaborate. And I'd met her before. And then we kind of cross paths again at one of those, those events where they invited Bjork and this group called dirty projectors to Mm -hmm. work together. And Dave from dirty projectors, he just, he, when they did that, he just went with it. He wrote six new songs for this little tiny, you know, the oh, yeah. size this. And I thought, geez, he's raised the bar awfully high for <laughs> just doing a, <laughs> l- right, a right, benefit in right. a is. little <laughs> store. Yeah. Uh, but they approached Annie, that's her name, and I, and I said, well, if she wants to do it, I'll do it. And it's I almost thought,
0: like a challenge. It was
1: a kind of a challenge. Yeah. And I said, okay, Annie, let's... She came and said, let's do it with, you know, a lot of brass instruments. And I said, that's great because then you don't have to have a big sound system in a little bookstore. Yeah. And I said, let's just try a few things. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, we quietly put it away and nobody knows it ever happened. But it, it, it worked great. And we never did do the show at the bookstore, but they got they got benefit money from other shows we did. And... You made a we record. We made a whole record and, it was, yeah. and did tour and all that. and it was, it was really exciting. And we kind of did this tour where we choreographed the brass players, where they were kind of moving around the stage and making formations and all this kind of stuff, uh-huh. interacting with us. It was really a lot of fun.
0: Well, great, man. Uh, yeah, this is a great talk. I'm glad you made Thank time you. for it. And, Thank you. And, and uh, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, beside myself. <laughs> All right, that's our show. Wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that amazing? It was David Byrne. David Byrne. I talked to David Byrne, and he was amazing. I I just love talking to that guy. It was a real real exciting thing for me. And it's funny because after the conversation, like a few days later, he he sent me an email that said, Do you remember my comment that some, uh, in parentheses, younger folks don't know me from talking heads but from other things? Well, this email story came in today, sort of a crazy, extreme example, but here it is, and he forwarded me an email he received from somebody, and it said, I was at a bookstore in Chelsea Market on Sunday and overheard two high school girls talking. One of them picked up a copy of How Music Works and said, Oh, yeah, he's the color guard guy. I see him at, like, every competition these days. Isn't that wild? How do you get them into the talking heads? I think that everyone should know the talking heads. Anyways... That's our show. Go to WTFpod.com for all your WTF needs. Uh, please watch my show, Marin, on IFC, Thursdays at 10. Uh, and please uh, uh, enjoy yourself or something. You know, I hope. Oh, God. I got I to get ready. I got to go do a show. Boomer lives.